So we are finishing up John chapter 3 today. You know, it's a, it's a lot to take in, so it's a little bit, sounds a little bit somewhat what about Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, but, also, but we also get the fact that this is John the Baptist's last scene of witnessing before he gets thrown into jail and beheaded and everything else. Um, so, you know, John the Baptist makes one more appearance, but also we have this reiteration of how important, the importance of who Jesus is and where he came from. Right, so before we get into that, you know, the title of this is Knowing Where You Fit. And a lot of times that's very difficult to understand, especially in God's kingdom, what's his will, what, you know, is he so worried about every little thing that if I go the wrong places, he can upset me. You know, how much leeway do we have, these other things, and what am I here for? Right, we all have a role to play in the kingdom. So part of this explains, you know, what we can take away from this for us is, is, you know, John the Baptist knew exactly what he was here for. And he knows what Jesus is here for, right? So he is able to explain that to his disciples who came to him and, and were trying to, I don't know really what they were trying to do other than maybe just inform him, but it seemed like they were trying to upset him maybe for lack of a better term. Um, but, but if you look at your outline, you see that we're going to see that knowing where you fit keeps you focused, knowing where you fit keeps you humble, and knowing where you fit keeps Jesus at the top. Right? And those are kind of the explanations of what Jesus is that I used. That I saw the football play thing here with the chalkboard. Right? Because if, if we are a football team, and Jerry knows this really well, if you plays football or under, plays a sport, you know, the X's and O's, you have a job to do on a certain play, and I hated it. I like being a lineman because it was pretty easy. Right? If it was an even number, it was like a, I think it was a run play, so you just block whoever, and if it was an odd number, it was a pass play, so you stand still and hit whoever's in front of you. If you're a running back or a receiver, you have all these other things to figure out where I have to go 10 yards, 20 yards, 5 yards in, out, whatever. So it's very difficult on a team to know where you fit on this team and how, what, what, what your positions are. But our lives are, are not as easy as a football game necessarily where somebody has drawn up plays, right? So sometimes we get like, what am I doing? I'm standing out in the middle of the field doing nothing. So how many of you have ever heard, and I probably know the answer, but how many of you have ever heard of a Scottish pastor named James Robe? You have? All right, good. Oh, great. So he, for those of you who haven't heard of him, he, he, he preached in a small town near, near Glasgow, Scotland called Kilsith. And so here's James' story a little bit. So by 1742, J James Robe had been ministering at the Kilsith Church, Church, Kilsith Church of Scotland for 30 years. So during that time, he had faced many discouragements. And I have it on the, the, the thing here, the board. You should be able to see him on the, the screen. So it's a little hard to read maybe. Um, but so in 1733 and 1734, a pleuritic fever claimed the lives of 60 from his congregation in the space of three weeks. All right, so... I think we have it rough. So here's 60 people passed away within three weeks. Uh, in the summer of 1733, there was a severe rain and hailstorm with three-inch size hail. It destroyed all the corn. Many homes were destroyed and the cattle drowned as well. So, of course, as a farmer, that's your livelihood. That's where you're getting your money and your income. You can't just make them back, you know. So that, that season was 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 a disaster. So a division in his church resulted in 12 families leaving. So that's after the 60 people passing away. So the area was struck with another famine. 
many suffering the point of death, and no one, none turned to God through this, pleading for mercy when prosperity returned, did not bring them with it a renewed thanksgiving to God. Like, oh, that's just the way it is. You know, that's just the life of being a farmer. So there's no need to turn to God. It's whatever, right? We just didn't plan enough or whatever, maybe what was going through their mind. And then, I'm not going to read all of them, but basically people were indifferent to his messages, to God, so they turned to drinking and other vices. They, they, instead of turning to God, they turned to other things. The spirit of formality seemed to prevail, and so, so they became very set in their ways. They weren't really listening to the spirit. They weren't praying. There were no prayer groups that they had before. Um, so even with all his praying and diligent preaching and teaching, he was not seeing any results that he had been anticipating. Right? Nobody, nobody expects to come into the pulpit and think everybody's just going to get saved in one day. But at the same time, when you start seeing people go the other way, you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> what am I doing wrong? Right? So what is he to do? Right? Does, he, does he fit in as a pastor? Is that even his job? Is he making a mistake for the last 30 years of his life? Because things had seemingly gotten very terrible. But see, here he, he fit, we're going to see here in a few minutes, a little bit through the, through the sermon, that, that a revival comes over this area and it explodes and they were tied, well, it's spoiler alert, they were talking about it a hundred years after. You know, you know the, the revival had happened, that God made happen, they were talking about it years after and we we're talking about it today. You know, this is 1742, so you're, think, you're talking three, four hundred years after. Right, so, so let's go ahead and read. We're going to read uh, John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. And then when we get to the other section of 31 through 36, we'll read that as well. But here's what John the Evangelist says about John the Baptist for the final time. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside, where he spent time with them and baptized. John also was baptizing, excuse me, at an inn near Salim, because there was plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized since John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then a dispute rose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going with him. John responded, No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is, is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Right, and so a lot of us know that last, that last verse, particularly verse 30. And so we see right, John the Baptist has a problem. He's confronted with what we think is a problem, but he handles it a completely different way than other people because if people were saying, hey, because I've read it on people's boards and say, well, I have a whole family of five leaving and going to, you know, whatever church across town. What do I do? You know, we're losing people. Well, there's things you should evaluate as a church, but there's also things that maybe he's just, whatever it is they're getting, maybe hopefully it's God, right, they're getting there. But we all have a role to fill for seasons, and so it doesn't mean everybody's going to be in one place for the whole time, right? So here's our main idea with this, though. It is, it import, it is important to know your God-given role in the kingdom, right? It's important for us to understand and know God's given role for each of us in His kingdom. Because if we're all pastors, there's no audience, right? If, there, if, if there's no... If, there's no uh, if we're all musicians, the band is very big, 
and there's nobody to sing in the choir, there's nobody to do certain things, if we're all being on the hospitality team, there's nobody to come in and sit down, right? It's, it's, we need to each do our own things that God has gifted us with. And so we look at this, and so the first part is that the first two verses, or three verses, 22 through 24, this is looking about keeping us focused, right? So John moves the scene. So the first part of chapter 3 is in Jerusalem, and then John tells us that Jesus and his disciples left, and they went out to the country. So they leave the city. So country mouse and city, city mouse goes to country mouse. Right? He goes and visits, right? So they leave, and they move, they go away, they go outside the city. And so Jesus, we hear, this is the only time in the, any of the Gospels that it says Jesus was involved with baptizing. Now it says that the, the disciples were baptizing and Jesus wasn't necessarily doing it. But this is the only time that is really mentioned in all the Gospels that Jesus is even involved in baptizing people. So it's, very, it's kind of interesting. We always just see the disciples doing it. But John the Baptist was at a place called Anon near Salim. And so they don't know exactly where this place is, but the, the word Anon is a Hebrew. It's a transliterated Hebrew word. So they took the Hebrew letters and turned them into whatever. If it's an A in Hebrew, then they turn it into an A in, in Latin or English. And so that's how they spell it. They don't change the name of it. So it's a word that means springs. And so it's used to indicate their place had a lot of water. It says there's a, because there was plenty of water there, right? So maybe it was a, a place where the spring had come out of the ground and kind of maybe made like a pond or something like that, or maybe started the river or floated to a river. So there was a lot of extra water around to baptize people. They weren't just dunking people in a puddle. They're just because there happened to be water around. There was a, clearly enough of a pool there for people to get in and out of and do, do what they had to do. <clears throat> And so, we see that both people, John and Jesus, are working. Right? John the Baptist, he, he prophesied about Jesus. Jesus went off and does, does his own thing. And so, John is continuing because he's still here. And his job is to prophesy about the Messiah. That's what he continues to do. He was probably doing it the entire time that Jesus was in Jerusalem, tearing up a temple, talking to Nicodemus, everything he was doing. Probably even while, while Jesus and his disciples were, were at the wedding at Cana, John was out there doing work. Because that's what he did. He was focused on what he was doing. And so John gives us, he does give us a side note that says, in verse 24, it says, since John had not yet been thrown into prison, right? So he was still working until he got thrown into prison. He was still prophesying about the Messiah. And so it's an interesting comment because it seems like the people... We're prob people hearing this were probably familiar with the other Gospels because if you're trying to line everything up with timelines and go, I heard the story, I know this, shouldn't John be in prison by now? And John, John the Evangelist is coming and saying, look, this, this story takes place before that happens, so nobody's messed anything up, everything's all even and equal, this just happens to take place before that happens. So it's interesting because what we see is that, again, this is interesting from a historical standpoint that people knew and they were having, including John, he probably had access to the Gospels, the other Matthew, Mark, and Luke at this point, right? So here we see this harmonization again. And he's not going to go over other information that they already have, but he's also giving us information and clues to say, look, I'm not messing anything up. It's all good. And they, all, they all mesh together, right? So from anybody who runs on people who says, oh, the Bible just... You know, it's just made up or copied or whatever. Now you see the, the, the differences and the similarities between these. Right? So how they work together. So just kind of a, 
an aside as, as it is. But, but here in the Gospel, right, John, the, the evangelist, the, the Gospel writer, he's not using John the Baptist. He's not just telling us about John the Baptist. He's letting John the Baptist tell his story. Right? He's not just writing the words down, but he's having John the Baptist tell us, use his own words, and he's telling us these things. And so he's not just a, a historical person or a figure, but he's also he's a symbol who John uses to contrast directly with Jesus. John the Baptist is a witness, but Jesus is the light. So John is the voice, Jesus is the word. Right? And so John baptizes with water, but Jesus is baptized with the Spirit. We see that you know, with, with the conversation with Nicodemus. And so we have this contrasting ideas going on of, of, of this position of who Jesus is, right? He's God, and then we have John and everybody else. So everybody else is below. We'll get to that when we get to the last section there. But it's important to keep that in mind because everybody we encounter, Jesus always goes on top. And so John is staying focused with his job. And so John organizes his gospel in a way that was helping people who would believe and who could believe this various ideas of, of who Jesus is and the coming of, of Jesus, that he's fulfilling these prophecies. Right? So he's not worried necessarily with chronology so much as he's worried about explaining who Jesus is. So if you really want to get down and glue everything together, it's like, well, wait a minute, there's a missing gap here. This seems to overlap, or how could this happen here or there, right? It's like, well, the point of the story is Jesus is God. The details all make sense if you understand what's going on. But we see in, in Baptist preacher Benjamin Keach's Baptist Catechism, because really, what is our job? And so the question is, what is the duty which God requires of man? And so the answer is the duty which God requires of man is obedience to his revealed will. Which there should be a couple slides for that. Slide guy. But maybe not. There you go, thanks. <clears throat> right, what is our job? Our job is to be obedient. So John is being obedient. He hasn't been told to stop. Right, God didn't tell John, hey, Jesus is here, you can go home now. You know, well, he does get retired, essentially. We, we kind of talked about that on Thursday night a little bit. Like, why do people pass away so early? Why do things happen? It's like, well, maybe the fact that once, you're, once God is done with you, he's, you have fulfilled the will for him, his will, he brings you home. He retires you. No matter what your retirement age is, that's what happens. I don't know, maybe it's just a thing that makes me feel happy, but I feel like we see that John the Baptist, as he does, he, he's, he's decreasing, he's moving off the stage. Because Jesus is taking center stage. And so our obedience to God is what keeps us focused on Him. We don't need to be worried about what other people are doing. Right? If, if, we, if we have a hospitality team, nobody, I don't need to be going, well, I can't believe you didn't go welcome those people in the parking lot. If I'm, you know, like, well, hey, I didn't see them. I'm, I'm doing my job. I'm trying. I'm doing my job here, right? Because guess what? I didn't think you exegeted the text very well there, Pastor Guy. Right? Maybe you're not doing your job, right? And so we can do this back and forth stuff with each other because, because usually it's because, well, I'm not doing a good job, so I'm going to point out somebody else isn't doing a good job. Instead of admitting, admitting that I'm not doing a good job or maybe helping where somebody is having a struggle, Right, we can be focused on what our jobs are and everything gets done. Because we're not worried and we're not trying to poke anybody, poke fun at anybody. So James Robe, 
going back to him in Scotland, he kept working as well. He helped another church down the road. He's like, well, my church is whatever, so I'll go help this other church. And all of a sudden, it, 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 it made him double his efforts to pray. He started praying more, and so all of a sudden, the first evidence of change that started to take place at Kilseth began at a prayer meeting when a group of young ladies, ages 10 to 16, it's pretty good, right? Just, you know, young women began to express their deeper longing for more of God. Because they focused on the right things and things fell into place when they had to happen because God is making things happen when they need to happen. And so we hear that, we see that John's comment, he, he says people are coming and being baptized, so it sounds like John was pretty busy. You know, people were still coming to be baptized by him and he was most likely telling them about Jesus. He wasn't saying, hey, come listen to me. He's like, hey, go find Jesus. Go to, go to his church. He's the, he's the better pastor. It's whatever. Because that, that was his job and he understood that. And so, he's telling them that Jesus had come to take away the sins of the world. And so Proverbs 10, Solomon says, A wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son heartache to his mother. So how is a son or daughter wise? What do we do? What do we understand or what do we know? So in Proverbs 1.7, we go back to the beginning of that book. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. A wise person listens, trusts, and obeys the Lord. All right, so when we are focused on God, when we are listening to God, we are fearing Him, we want to know what's going on. We want to know His heart so we can change our heart. We're focused on Him. And we saw that Nicodemus was still not there yet in the beginning of the chapter. He wasn't obeying God yet. He hasn't converted just yet. But John the Baptist was out in the countryside. He was out in the sun. He was standing in the water all day, baptizing and preaching, because that's what God wanted him to do. And they didn't have waders, so he couldn't be out there in his hip waders, keeping his feet dry and everything else. He was out there in the water, in the mud, whatever else, getting all wrinkly and everything else, so he could baptize and tell people about Jesus. Because that was his job. He was focused. But this also allowed him to be humble. So, Verses 25 through 30, right, we see that John's disciples come and they get into an, an argument with another Jew. Excuse me, about purification, right? So what's going on? Who, who can baptize? How, how, how can they baptize? Why are they baptized? What's it for? All these other things. But it basically, what they're saying is, hey, that guy you baptized, your student, essentially, Jesus, He's got more people. He's baptizing more people than you are. Right? So in other words, your student is now going around teaching. By the way, he has more people at his river than you do at yours. Really, that's just to stir the pot, I think, honestly. And again, a lot of us, how would we respond to that? Well, I better increase my marketing. I better... I better get the be I get a better get a better sound system. I better get a, a big car to walk or drive around like the Blues Brothers and say, you know, hey, church on Sunday, rhythm and blues review. You know, this is we're, this time we're here. But he doesn't. He doesn't get jealous. Instead, he says, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. He's like, look, God has given me what I need to have. He's given me everything I need, whatever that means. He goes on to tell you, look, I, wasn't, I told you I wasn't the Messiah. They shouldn't be following me around hoping that I come and save Israel and save the world. That's not my job. 
My job is to tell you guys about him. And so again, John the Baptist is probably one of the most popular preachers during this period. He is the last Old Testament prophet. By many scholars, he, he is, if you want to draw a line in the sand, you know, John the Baptist goes on the Old Testament side and Jesus goes on the New Testament side. He is the last Old Testament prophet. He was known enough by the Jews, right? We see the opening of the book. They send people from the church. Right? The establishment, the association send people out to say, hey, who are you? What are you doing? Why are you doing this? Are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you Moses? No, no, and no. But he was telling them he has a hopeful message. The Messiah is on his way. And there he is. He said, look, there's the Lamb of the, lamb of the world who takes away the sins of the world. But now other people are following Jesus, and rightfully so, because John is saying, look, this is my portion. This is the portion God has given me. He sent me to proclaim the Messiah's coming, and I've done that. So essentially, again, he, his job is almost complete. He's going to leave the stage. Jesus is going to take center stage here in a few minutes. And so this idea of portion, though, comes from Jeremiah's book of Lamentations, verse three, or chapter 3, verse 24. It says, I say, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will put my hope in him. There's no need to be jealous because he knows that God has given him everything. He knows he can be humble because he said, whatever God has given me to use, this is what I'm going to do. And so Puritan Thomas Brooks, in his brilliant exposition of lamentation of this whole passage, he's got a whole book, a couple hundred pages of sermons, I guess. Um, he advises the saints that to be content with their present condition, let them sit down satisfied and contented. Though they have but a handful of meal in their barrel and a little oil in a cruise, of, a cruise or a jar, the old word for jar. Just like that, that, that story comes from the prophet Elijah when the widow only had a little bit of oil, a little bit of, little bit of flour, but that lasted like a year or a couple years. Because she relied on God to do this. She relied on all these things. She relied on God to do this. And he was humble. He didn't go looking for other things. Paul tells the Philippians... You need to know how to be content with a lot or a little. Good times and bad times. Because your joy comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from external things that you have or don't have. It comes from having God. And knowing where you fit ultimately is in the kingdom. Sure, all of us would love to be rock star preachers. We would love to have 8 million people here where they have to, we have to put the speakers outside of the windows and people are up on the mountaintop and hearing all these things. Yes, that's the goal. I would love that. But if God says that's not the goal for you, then that's what we go with. That's it. We do what we can. We, we, we plug along. We're humble. We, we talk to who we can and people will come as God sends them to us. Same with our lives. This is what we do. This is my job. This is your job. We do it. Doesn't mean we have to be super happy all the time, to tell you honest, right? Nobody likes your job 100% of the time. But we need to be happy with God 100% of the time. You know, Paul asked for that thorn to be removed. He asked him three times and said, All right, your grace is enough. All right, God told him, this is My grace is enough for you to do this. Don't worry about that other thing. Even Jesus asked for his portion of his cup to be removed, if at all possible, on the night of the crucifixion or before his arrest. He prayed in the garden and said, If this be in your will, take this cup from me. But if not, then I'm going to do it. I will drink that bitter drink to be crucified. 
for the world. We can do this because as, as, as Brooks goes on to encourage his audience, he says, Oh, friends, you have but a short journey to go. You have but a little way home and a little will to serve to bear your charges until you come to heaven. Right? We are not here forever. Right? We talked about this Thursday night too, right? Our eternity is one place or another. If you're saved, you're going to heaven. That's where we are going to be eternally happy and joyful and brand new and everything else. And a big, big huge house, right? We talked about it. Like, does everybody get the same stuff? You know, uh, cookie cutter mansions? I don't know. But I mean, we're going to have nice houses. We're going to have all these things that whatever we need, we're never going to want for anything because ultimately God is there providing it all. You know, he built it. He's there. He's in the middle of it. We were there to worship Him. And so John the Baptist is completely fine with people going to learn from Jesus because he knows who Jesus is and he knows where He came from. I mean, he's literally the author of the book. So would you rather hear me talk about the book that this guy wrote or would you rather hear it from the author? I'd rather hear it from the author. So I'm going to go hang out with Jesus because he wrote it. So we get to the end part. And so John goes into this last piece of explaining who Jesus is. And so, again, John the Evangelist is using John the Baptist in his own words. You're giving a speech to give, to give the explanation and witnessing of who Jesus is. And he says in verse 31, he says, The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to that what he has seen and heard, yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For the one whom God sent speaks God's words, since he was given the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. And so again, we, he jumps into the theological aspect of it all, and it sort of ties back in with the beginning part of chapter 3 of what Jesus said by, of himself. But God sent Jesus from above to come to earth. Right? That's why we celebrate Christmas. You know, God with us, Emmanuel, so he was born. And he receives everything, including sinners. Because he's the one who makes us saints. And so this ex explanation of coming from heaven, coming from heaven links to what John said about verse 27, about a man cannot receive unless it has been given from heaven. If Jesus never came down, we would not be able to receive him as a gift. So it's important just from that aspect that he has to come down to do everything else. And you can't have God the Son unless God the Father sent him. And so Jesus is the living word. And so we see this, right? John understands he was sent by God and Jesus is also sent by God. And so Jesus is the living Lord. He is the Logos, as John calls him in, in, in the first chapter. So Old Testament scholar Michael Fishbane's book, The Garments of Truth, he says, One of the greatest contributions of Judaism to the history of religions is its assertion that the divine reality makes itself humanly comprehensible through the structures of language. So what does that mean? Through the Old Testament... And through our language, we are able to understand who God is. And Jew, the Jews have kept that Old Testament going for centuries. And they're pretty faithful. Now it goes through some, some things here and there through the history, but it is pretty much pretty solid all the way through to what we have now. 
And that's the ability until we get, and we get to the New Testament that's carried on. So we know who God is because God told his people and his people kept the book. They kept the records. And so when Jesus comes down, they're also writing it down to say, look, this is all the fulfillment of these prophecies. Here it is. Here's the Messiah. Here's what Jesus did for us. And so another scholar then comments, it is through a written text that God is known. So we understand that who God is because of His Word. And, and the big word, the big W word is Jesus. Because things are, all things that were created were spoken. You know, God spoke and it was created. So He is the Creator. Right, and so now this word on the page about people telling you about the Messiah, now He's here in front of them. People have the ability to go be touched and be, be baptized by Him. And so they're standing in front of you, in front of people like Nicodemus and the disciples. They're teaching him. And so John the Baptist is his voice and his witness, but Jesus is the message and the Messiah. Right? A singer is only one part of the song. The words are the message. The words are what the song is about. That's why you have to listen to the lyrics to see, is this a good song or not? It's not just because it makes me want to dance, but is, or whatever they're saying, is it legitimate? Is it accurate? You know, whatever, especially with Christian songs or even pop songs, what do they say? Because people say, oh, I love that song. They're like, well, you know, it's about this. And like, whoa, what? Yeah, you got to listen. Okay, that is now not my new favorite song. Right? Because you have to hear the words. And so what we hear about Jesus is that He came down and He is the one here to save us. So if we believe Him, we believe in Him, we put our trust in Him, we will have eternal life. And so when we listen to the prophet, we hear Jesus, we hear about Jesus. And so John is saying, look, my job is to have you hear Jesus. My job also as a pastor is to make sure you hear about Jesus. You hear Jesus, not me. Hopefully it's the Bible. Wow, I didn't know the Bible said this. I'm just the vehicle. I'm the singer. You guys are hearing the words. And the words are more important than my voice because you don't want me singing it. But we can be content in our place and what we have because we recognize God's position in our lives and so He must be first in your life. And so John 3.36 is sort of a rewording of John 3.16. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on Him. So again, John is exactly repeating what Jesus said to Nicodemus. And so this explains the responsibility that we bear with our free will that we have. Because our free will has been given to us by God, but we have a responsibility with that. So we can't say, nobody can say, oh, God made me go to hell. No, you have every, every ability to say, I want to go to heaven. Right? So there's this, again, there's this balance of how it works out. And so God doesn't force us nor does He let us off the hook for our decisions. But His effectual calling on our lives is stronger than that of the enemy's lies. As Jesus says later in this book, of the book of John, for when the sheep hear the shepherd's voice, they know to respond and they know to follow Him. So everybody who is a sheep, one of Jesus' people, one of the chosen, one of the people who are destined, predestined to be called, they will respond to that calling. We don't know who they are, so that could be everybody. 
So John ends this chapter by reinforcing that God sent Jesus for a specific reason. And he sent John the Baptist for his purpose as well. Right? They all have a job to do. He also sends us around to places, whether it's for a long time or a short time, to do the same things. Whatever it is we're gifted with, whatever we're here to do, that's what he sends us to do. He equips us to do the work also, and that should enable us to focus on our task while others are doing the same. They're doing their tasks, I'm doing my task, we're all in our lanes. And we're all swimming toward the end. So James Robe got to preaching and he let God work in his church. And so it's recorded on one time that after one sermon on a Sunday, a lady on the way home from church service became so overwhelmed with the conviction of sin that she was found in a field crying out like the jailer, What shall I do to be saved? And so she was brought back to the church and received the necessary counsel she needed from Robe, and she then experienced the assurance of her salvation. And here are some other results of the revival that we have. I have a, should be a slide or two. So the feuds and the hatred between individuals were forgiven and laid aside, right? Because it's actually, you don't know what's about Scottish people or just in general, but you know, they can, the clans can fight. You know, sort of the Hatfields and McCoys and some other things like that. So, so all these feuds, they were put aside. They were, they, were, they were laid aside for this. And so the thefts, apparently there were a lot of thefts going on that were before the, before the revival became practically unheard of. Any wrongs that were done to others, they were made right. And so there is, this is, this is interesting, it says, there is an obvious transformation in the atmosphere of the church services with much more attention and seriousness being just demonstrated. So nobody was doodling, nobody was falling asleep, nobody was whatever. I, and I'm not picking anybody. I'm just, I'm just saying I doodle, so I know I doodle, so I know. Like, if if you if I were sitting in service and you thought I wasn't paying attention necessarily, I'm, that's how I learn. But there's obviously they were here for a purpose. They came to learn and hear the word of God. They weren't just here for a social club. They weren't just there for for anything else. And so even listen to this: the level of morality in the community was noticeably improved. People. Got better. Yes, right? So again, I'll read this to you. Close to 100 years later, from 1832 to 1838, the minister at Kilsith Church, who was William Burns Sr. at that time, would tell and retell the story of what occurred at Kilsith in 1742. And this led their congregation to, to more intense prayer, and revival again broke out in Kilsith in 1839. So they had like two revivals in like 100 years. So the church went through a went from a thirty year drought to years of intense revival. At any point, the minister could have given up. James wrote from like, you know what? Obviously, I am a terrible pastor. Or they're not getting it, or they're a terrible church. Whatever, whatever you want to spin on it and say, I'm out of here. I'll go somewhere else. But he didn't. He hung in there. He stayed the course. He stayed focused. He stayed humble. And all of a sudden, God, he, God started working in the church. Started working in his life and other people's lives. Boom. If he would have left, it may not have happened. He wouldn't have experienced it, whatever else. And so he could have easily been swayed by some other, other people being more successful, whatever it is. But we all have days like this, though, right? We all want to move on. We want to give up or do something different. But we have to trust God and be faithful and obedient that he'll get us through whatever it is we're going. Whatever we don't want to do, whatever, whatever's going on, he will be faithful and get us through that. So here are the questions this week. Right? What purpose has God given you? And it doesn't have to be one singular purpose either, right? There's, there's, it can be purposes. 
to make sure we don't limit it to one thing necessarily because usually we have multiple gifts. So I want to make sure we're don't just think on you're looking for one thing and if you don't know, then you're going to freak out. <clears throat> I don't have a job. And the other question is, what has he given you to do that job? Right, what has he equipped you with? What has he already provided training essentially to you through your life to do whatever it is you're doing? Because all of God's children fit and belong in the kingdom of God. That's a done deal. That's, if you, even if you don't know what your job is, it doesn't matter. You still fit in God's kingdom. Maybe you're just there to be a moral supporter. That's fine. We need those people too. Right? And we, we can rotate in and out. Right? So, so make sure we take heart in that and, and we understand and we know that we belong in God's kingdom. Because that's, no matter what, that's where we belong. That's what we do. And that He has revealed, He will reveal our purpose to each of us as we go. Right? So as we go out this week, think about those things. Pray about it. Pray how you can be humble and stay focused and keep Jesus at the top too. So let's go ahead and have the band come up and we will sing our last couple songs.